Hello, welcome to The Journey. This is a chronological Bible study. We go through the scripture chronologically as it happened through history rather than in the traditionally arranged order of your Bibles. It gives you a nice breadth of scripture. This is a ministry of Discipleship Matters, and if you're interested in learning more about that, just stay tuned at the end of the podcast, and we'll tell you a little bit about that. Today, we are exploring Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 16 through chapter 5, verse 7. It is. His point is, if it's all about our plans, it doesn't get us anywhere, because that all goes away. That we die, and it doesn't matter what our plans are, our plans will be rewritten by the next person to live after us. And so that's what he says. For us, it's all meaningless because we're temporary. But if God has a plan, God's permanent. And so if God has a plan and we're part of that, then we might be part of this puzzle in a way that's bigger than us. So that's why. There's no meaning if it's just about us. There might be meaning if it's about God. But even if that's the case, where we are now is, what do we do with that? Because that just hurts. Because we want more meaning but we're still stuck in these bodies, okay? Now, uh, Lorraine, my daughter, brought up something last week, which, uh, just to remind you and acknowledge, we'll see, actually, touches on this a little bit as we go forward. Remember that at the time of Solomon, and even the time of David, remember that God, God doesn't give all insight and all revelation at the same time. And as you walk through the Old Testament, you see that there's things that Moses didn't know that David knew things that David didn't know that, 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 that Jesus shares. I mean, you have this sense of progressive understanding. God gives more information as time goes on. The obvious example is the Messiah itself. We know a lot more about the Messiah than anybody in the Old Testament did. They knew the Messiah was coming, but they had very little idea of what the Messiah would be like. The idea that he would be God never even occurred to them. That was crazy. So, so there is a sense of progression. In light of that, remember that in the time of Solomon, there seems to be, if we read David's Psalms and we look at what Solomon says, there seems to be some speculation about an afterlife, but no clarity about it. Okay? There's not a for sure certainty what happens after you die. David seems to indicate he believes that there is something that goes on, but even he is unsure what that looks like at all. Solomon, likewise, seems to indicate the same sort of tension. That maybe, maybe there's something. So that's a lot of what's going on here, too. When it's done, it might be done. He's not sure. It's not been made clear. And if you look through all the Old Testament up to this point, it hasn't been made clear. God has never at any point said, here's what happens after you die. It's not there. Okay. All right. So he's going to continue his, his things. Yes. If that's the case, then the time of Enoch, which has already happened before this, right? Yeah. Is there any indication as to what they assumed happened to him? No. Nope. Because they know he didn't die. Correct. But but even if they believe he went to be with God, which is which is which may be what they say, it says Enoch walked with God and then he was no more. Don't know what that means. But if even if they believe he just took Enoch with him, they could argue, okay, but that's because he didn't die. That still doesn't tell you anything about what happens after you die. Oh, okay. Uh, right? Yeah. Same is true of Elijah. Elijah was taken up in whirlwind. Did he die? Maybe not. Maybe not. So, but that doesn't tell you anything about the afterlife. It just tells you maybe these guys are sort of crazy special and they don't have to die. (laughs) Okay. Again, I think there's speculation. I I don't think it's like impossible to them that there's an afterlife. They just don't. God hasn't told them. I don't know for sure yet. All right. But let's go on. 
He's going to continue to walk through. What he's doing is he's going piece by piece. Here's the things I looked for for purpose. Here's the things that seem to make a difference. So let's take a look. And the next one he's going to look at is justice. And this makes sense again because like wisdom, this is part of what he's known for as a ruler. Even the reason he asked for wisdom was probably so that he could lead justly. He gives that indication. Show me how to lead these people. And he's kind of known for that. There, there seems to be a real sense of peace and prosperity and, and, and justice is never perfect, as he's going to point out. But there is a sense that he really wants that and moves towards that. So I think the things he's going to say here are, are, again, they're a heart cry. These are severe disappointments. As he gets to the end of his life, he says, I really wanted to bring justice to the world. And he's going to let us know if he succeeded or not probably know what he's going to say, but this is, this is where he goes. Yeah. So he says, and I saw something else under the sun. Now this is interesting too. He starts using this phrase under the sun more frequently. And I think that might be because he's just gone through the tension of there's this God who transcends the sun. He's out on the other side. You know, he's bigger than the sun. And there is this eternity which will outlast the sun. I don't know if you had any indicate any idea like we do the sun will someday burn out but he may have seen all things as temporary but whether he did or not it is as if i think he's beginning to at least make a distinction between what happens on the earth and what happens in god's plan and he's not super solid about it but i think it is part of the way he's being to say it that way okay maybe there is a permanent plan in god but what we see here this is what we see here this is the part of the tension where we are just living in this world regardless of what we feel we long for more but we don't see it so as he talks about justice, that's going to be a really significant thing. He's going to point out, we long for justice, we don't see it. It doesn't exist, not in the form we want it in the world. So he says, and I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. Okay. So he looks at the world and he says, where there should be justice, what do I see? Wickedness. Where there should be judgment, what do I see? Wickedness. This is akin to the tension that David feels when he talks about why do the wicked people thrive? Right? Why isn't there judgment upon them? It's the same wrestling. But Solomon probably had a notion that if he was a good enough king, he could fix that. And he did as, and this is again the thing to realize, Solomon did as good as anybody. And he knows it, in a sense. He's like, I have the resources and the will and the interest and I even had God's help. And so, again, it's not a, well, this hasn't been tried. It's, yeah, I tried. Remember back to the very beginning, those of you who were here last week, one of the things he said is, one of the things I learned in wisdom that really made me sad is that the crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. There's just a point at which I can't make the world work. I cannot make it perfect. Every perfectionist in the world understands that cry of the heart. Right? I just can't make it happen. <laughs> I really want it to. And I think most perfectionists start out with an idea that they can't. Maybe they don't say it out loud that way, but there's a part of them that thinks, if I do it better, I can make it work. And so this is what he's about to say. He says, I said to myself, so here's the thing, he's wrestling, we're about to see the internal wrestling that happens in him. So we talked last week about how there's a couple different ways to read Ecclesiastes. Both of them end up at the same place. But one is to think of him as, as having worked it all out, and he's writing from beginning to the end, and he's kind of walking us through the thinking he's already had. The other way is to read it as if we're almost walking through it with him, that he's kind of journaling his own issues. 
Either way, it works fine. It's interesting, though, here in, in light of where he says, I said this to myself, and then I said this to myself. And when you read it, you realize he's arguing with himself. And that kind of reads almost like, again, either he's just given us a good picture of the journey he went through, or he's actually arguing it out as he's writing it out. I'm not sure which is true, but that's what we see here is this sense of actually the kind of internal monologue or dialogue even that we all have, where we actually say one thing and then say the other, and then we're like, well, now which is true? And this is what he says to start with. He looks around, he sees wickedness, and he sees that people are not being judged. He sees that justice is not there. He's just depressed by the state of the world even after everything he's done to build a just kingdom. And in response to feeling that way, he says this. Sorry, apologies. You're right with me. Okay. He says, I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked. For there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. So he goes back to what he talked about. Maybe there's a grand plan. Maybe it's all happening. And therefore, what I see now is just the middle of their story. There will come a judgment from God. And so that's what he said to myself. But then he says, but, he says, he doesn't say but, but essentially that's what he's saying. He says, I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust. And to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. Here we can see where some of their speculation is. There's this idea that maybe humans rise up and the animals go down and maybe that happens, but he's like, do we really know? And what is happening here is on the one hand, he's saying, well, maybe God will bring everyone to account ultimately and there will be judgment and there will be justice. But then he says, but really, we all end up the same place anyway. So even if he is bringing judgment and justice, it doesn't matter. I'm righteous, I'm wicked, it doesn't matter. We just all die. And just like the animals have no real justice because they have no real, no real sense of morality or right and wrong or doing what's good, they just, they just live their lives by instinct. But we're no different than that. In the sense of where we end up, we're just all the same. We all die. And maybe something good happens after life or not, but I don't know for sure. And so that leads him back even when he says, well, maybe God is going to make everything just he still ends up in the place of, but if, if we just all die, it still doesn't matter, right? You get punished for what you did, I don't, and tomorrow we're both dead. <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> so this is, this is, I think, wrenching for him, this realization, whether he's just having it now or he's writing about how he had it, this is a heart-wrenching realization because this is what he's put a lot of his life into. Here it is again. This is something he thought would be his if only. He thought, if only I can bring justice to the world, if only I can reign in injustice, then, then I'll be fulfilled. That ocean will be finally filled. It didn't happen. So he looks around and he says, nope, it's no there good. There could have been a change of thought process for him because we are under the understanding that because we are children of God, we won't be judged. I don't think there was any idea of that. That's what I mean. Okay. But, but that's, the way, that's the way we understand it now. Sure. We're not judged. We got, we got, we got the, yeah, the red carpet treatment from Jesus. Right. 
But he didn't know that. Right, for sure. For sure he didn't know that. But I think it's even more than that. I think he's, he's saying, if it, it, we don't even know what happens in the afterlife, so if judgment is only under the sun, then even that doesn't matter. Because we'll die anyway. And when we die, it's done. It's over. Whatever judgment I had doesn't affect anything. So, again, I don't think this is a conclusion. This is the internal dialogue. This is the argument. Maybe God has a plan, and that brings meaning to things, but if we all still die, and we still can't see it, it's that same tension he talked about last week. I desire justice, but I don't see it in my lifetime, and after my lifetime, I'm dead. <laughs> so who cares? So clearly, if he is kind of assuming that there is some kind of an afterlife, he has very little idea of what that is. For sure. Is. And I think his last statement there, who knows, is, is showing, showing he's not assuming anything. Yeah. Well, that's kind of a good indication, Well, this is, an argue, this is an interesting point that you make, and this is an argument that philosophers uh, have made, Christian philosophers, really, since Augustine. Augustine and C.S. Lewis would be two, two primary people who've made this, two very famous people who've made this argument. Um, Descartes made this argument uh, without being specifically Jewish or Christian, but he made the same argument. They take this, this tension, and ultimately, we may see Solomon do the same as we keep going, um, hint, hint. But they take this tension of this idea that we have eternity in our hearts and we long for perfection, we long for order, we long for permanence, we long for purpose, we long for meaning, but we don't see it in our, in our life. Many philosophers, Christian philosophers, have said, look, the truth is, put that the other way around and ask yourself why. Here's the reality. We never see perfect justice in this world. We never see perfect beauty. We never see perfect unconditional love. We never see uh, perfect order. We never have a perfect sense of purpose and meaning. And then the question becomes, having never seen it in any generation throughout the whole history of the world, where on earth did we even get an idea of what such a thing looks like? Yeah, what is our sense of justice? Why do we even know what justice is? We don't have a model for it. Why do we know what beauty is? We only have shadows of it. C.S. Lewis specifically calls this Shadowlands, borrowing from Plato. And the idea is, their answer is, the reason we have a longing for it is because it is real, even though we can't see it. It is from God, and that's why we even care. And so Solomon is wrestling with, why do you give us this longing? Because it just hurts. And if you didn't give it to us, then we wouldn't care. They turn that around, and they say, the reason, it's not that God gave it to us to torture us. It's that the, the, re the fact that we have it is proof that there is more, is proof that this isn't all. We wouldn't care about meaning if there really wasn't any. And that's the argument a lot of people make. Meredith? Maybe brought up this point, but does that, if ultimately what you pull from Ecclesiastes is that, oh, uh, well, everything here is permanent, but there is an afterlife, and there everything will be fine. Does that not just make the afterlife another if only? And is that a problem? Well, you could argue it's the only, it's the only if only is correct. But I actually agree with you. I don't think that is the ultimate conclusion of Ecclesiastes. And it's kind, even that is kind of a depressing conclusion if that's what you come to. In other words, we live, life is miserable, meaningless, and then we die, and then the afterlife matters. Because then you, you just still kind of ask yourself, well, then what does it matter what we do here? If that's really all it is, what does it matter what we do here? Now, there's the question maybe we're judged after, but even that, is that it? Is that it? We live good here so that we get a better judgment later? I, it isn't 
I don't think that's the ultimate conclusion of Ecclesiastes, and we should be careful about drawing ultimate conclusions in the middle of our journey here, obviously. He is about to reach for a conclusion again. It's similar to the one he reached for before. It's similarly not quite as satisfying as you'd like, but it's not completely incorrect. And again, he's going to actually build on this, and it's going to make a little bit more sense as we go. But here's the conclusion he reaches for now. So again, he's tried wisdom. He's tried folly. Now he's tried justice, and he says, nope, that also is meaningless. So he says this, look, if we can't make it last, if we can't make an impact, even if justice isn't something we can bring that will change the world, what do we do? And he says, I saw that there's nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? I want you to see there's a slight change here from the last time he said this. And I actually think it is relevant and it is slightly more hopeful, although it may not feel like it yet, but we're moving in increments here. But here's the difference. This time he adds the idea that it is their lot and he poses that question. Who knows what happens later? We don't, right? So he puts these in here, here's the point. When he says it is their lot, He's talking about what he just said earlier, that there's a time for everything. And that maybe, maybe, there's a plan that God has. And what we do is part of that plan. And if that's true, then we can have some hope that what we do has eternal purpose and meaning. And I think that's what he's hinting at or hoping for when he says that is their lot. He doesn't just mean you might as well enjoy your work because it's all going to end anyway and this is the best you get. I think he means... Maybe, we, it is, maybe the best thing we can do is be grateful for the life we have, accept the role that we've been given, enjoy it, enjoy it to the best that we can because it's part of the plan, not just because it just happened, but because it's our lot, it's our segment, it's our position, it's our time. It's part of the plan that goes into the eternal plan. And then he says, then he touches on that other part. Remember he said, yeah, that's all well and good, but we have eternity to build. We can't fathom what God is doing. Well, he's just acknowledging that. You can't. Who can see? Who can bring them to see what will happen after them? We don't actually know what happens after we're gone. There's no way for us to know that with certainty. So if we keep looking for legacy, if we keep looking for what happens later, we're just going to be miserable. So let's instead enjoy what we've got and say, I believe this is part, this may be part of God's plan for me, and I will trust that it has some relevance in the future. That is where he's going. So he's actually adding a piece of hope to this otherwise pragmatic statement he made earlier, which was just, well, you might as well enjoy yourself because why not? It's better than being miserable. But now he's saying, you might as well enjoy yourself and, and maybe there's a little hope that it is part of something bigger. You can't see it, but maybe you can hope in it. It's also better than being miserable. Well, I think he did say that earlier. Yeah, there are a few things he does acknowledge are better, but they're all kind of like better, you know, better garbage in a cesspool. Okay, I go ahead. I think we as humans want to see our personal purpose. For sure. And so he's saying, yeah, it's God's plan, it's God's purpose, not For sure. You're not you're not so special. You're just for part sure. of the whole thing. And I think I think he is also though at the same time he's reaching for this. I think he's saying it's not your fault that you want to be specially purposed. That's part of that eternity in our heart thing. It's God put it in there. It's his fault. But I think part of what he's saying is if we can wrap our minds around the fact that, that God has a plan and you are part of it, maybe we can begin to see, to, to trust him, that, that, our, that our purpose is important. Even if it looks like we're just enjoying our God. Maybe there's something important to that. If we can trust that it goes somewhere beyond what we're doing now. So I think he's, he's doing both. On the one hand, he's saying stop working so hard to make your own purpose and build your own empire because it ain't going to work. Because I tried and I tried with resources you don't have. 
He acknowledges that a few times in Ecclesiastes. He acknowledges very clearly, you guys can't even do what I did. How much worse is it for you? <laughs> because I have all these resources and I still can't get anywhere. So I think there is that. So on the one hand, he's saying, stop, stop trying to make it all about your own personal purpose. It is God's plan, perhaps, although he's not being very definitive yet. But he's also, I think, saying, but at the same time, I think he wants to be able to connect our personal work and recognize it as part of that big purpose. That's how we enjoy it. That's how we see it. Meredith? Oh, I guess this might not be anything. I was kind of thinking, well, talking about, like, enjoying their work um, and, like, their lot, it kind of almost is giving the idea and the sense that there is something, you know, like, kind of bigger. Right. I agree. I think that is exactly what he's hinting at. Yep. And, and he's going to make a really obvious statement later, and I'll just tell you now, and you'll see it when we see it. He's going to say, this is a lot easier to believe if your life is good. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, he's, he's just going to acknowledge that at one point. He's going to say, look, I get it. And he's, and he's kind of, I think, even speaking personally. For all my grumpiness and despair, I, I, it's easier for me to look and say maybe there's a purpose because, because I did things other people called important, because I'm comfortable, because I'm wealthy, because I've got a thousand women. You know, I mean, whatever it is, he is going to at one point acknowledge, yeah, that's, that, I realize that doesn't make sense. And, and in fact, let's keep going because this is where he, he's going to go on. I think that is sort of where his brain goes. Okay, that's all well and good to say that, but what if your lot in life is terrible? And that's what he says next. He says, again, I looked and I saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. He's going to get specific about the lack of justice in the world. He says, I saw the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead, who had already died, are happier than the living, who are still alive. Now, I don't think this means he suddenly believes in an afterlife. I think he's just saying, very depressingly, better to be dead than alive and oppressed. <laughs> um, and he's going to get worse than that. But better than both is the one who has never been born, right? I don't think he's even thinking there is such a thing as somebody who's never been born. They don't exist. That's, he's not arguing for some sort of eternal pre-birth point. He's just saying, he's saying, look, there's the person who's died. There, there's like this hierarchy. There's the person who's under oppression. And I just said, be happy because it's your lot in life. And I get it. There's tears and no comforter and you have no power and all the power is with the oppressor. And that is, I mean, that's always true, but, but it's even more true when he's speaking than today. Today, there are voices for the oppressed in ways that there were never voices for the oppressed, except maybe Solomon himself in Solomon's time. And they have no power. And he says, but, but, so that's why they're the worst situation. At least some people are dead. They're not having to deal with it anymore. And then he says, but even the people who are dead, they had to deal with it at some point. So better than that is the person who's never had to experience how terrible our world is. And if you didn't think Solomon was depressing enough, this is kind of the moment here. He says, better than both is the one who's never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. This is his conclusion about justice, that this pursuit for justice is a big fat failure as well. But the bottom line, he gave this conclusion, the best we can do is trust God's plan. But even in that, he's saying, look, the reason that's the best we can do is because justice will not give us fulfillment either. It will not give us a sense of purpose. It is as good as it is, it ain't gonna get us there because there's just a lot of evil going on under the sun. And even if I feel better about the justice I've done, you know, there's people who have no comforter and no power <laughs> and better off dead and better off not even having been born. So do you feel that he, he, he 
thinks that or he's speculating? I think he thinks that. What do you guys think? Well, if you got to the point where he's thinking you're better off dead or you were better off never being born, why isn't he suicidal? Because he's not oppressed. He's saying there are people oh, who okay. have no power and no comfort. He's being empathetic, but he's not that person. Okay. He's not arguing he's that person. He knows he's very much not that person, right? Yeah, right, okay. He's like, I'm not that person. Why don't you guys think so? Yeah, I mean, in one sense, it's horrible. He's saying you would be better off dead, but he's saying it from a standpoint of, of sympathy. Right. Again, I, I told you last week that the story of Buddha is very similar. He's a prince who goes out and he sees people suffering. And his conclusion is, how do you guys survive? <laughs> how do you guys live? And Buddha's conclusion is sort of not Solomon. Well, it's definitely not Solomon's conclusion. But you can see Solomon seeing the logic of it as he treads through this. He, he makes a turn later, but you can see him. Buddha's conclusion was basically, don't hope in anything. Just don't look for happiness. The best you can do is go numb. That's why Buddha's idea of, of heaven is, is not a place of pleasure or paradise. It's a place of nothing. It's a place of neither good nor bad emotions. It's a place of numbness. He literally says at one point, don't seek joy, don't seek sorrow, just ignore both. We well, have to admit, once you get to what we consider paradise, if it's all up, how are we going to know? If you don't ever have it down, how are you going to know if I, I don't. Nirvana I think that's paradise. a. Well, and I think that's a. I, I think that's a. That's a common but personally false argument. If you never saw darkness, and only saw light, would you not know what light was? You'd still know what light was. You don't need darkness to know what light is. It's the other way around. You need light to know what darkness is, because darkness is the absence of light. But light is a thing, and you can know what light is just by seeing it. And I actually think joy and beauty and perfection are the same way. They existed for all of eternity before we were born, in perfection, without any sort of, before we were created, without any sort of problem. We need those things to understand what evil is, but we do not need evil to understand what holiness is. That's, that's my particular C.S. Lewis Neoplatonic Augustinian <laughs> philosophy. Uh, uh, Jeff and then Joseph. Of course. In fact, you can argue that's what God told them not to understand. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, come on your years from now. From now or yeah, from now? From, from now. From us now. Yeah. Okay. There'll be a guy called Confucian who's. Oh, from child. now. Yes. Okay, from not us. Here. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. And what he basically what he that if everybody was harmonious and, you know, if you respected your wife, if you respected your elders, if you respected your people, you tried to do good in life, ultimately there would be a just society. Sure. If you want to know why nobody believes in Confucianism over there anymore, and in fact, Buddhism is high over there, because that didn't work. Well, and in fact, right. it was one of the most tumultuous periods, and people just were like, this isn't helping. I'm doing everything. I'm doing all these stupid guides and following my boss and my wife, and none of it is doing anything for me. I'm still oppressed. I mean, it's so essentially awful. Solomon's approach to wisdom. Yes. If we all just did this, it'd be great. Can't we all just get along? The problem is it's self-defining, too. In other words, what Confucius really said was, if we all lived justly, then we would be just. Well, yes, that is true. 
if we all lived perfectly, we would be perfect. But it's that if that gets in the way. That's the problem, right? Well, I mean, it's also one of those things that doesn't take too many people to screw up the system. One. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one. And Confucian would agree with that. In fact, that was his argument. If we could all live this way, we'd have a just society. But the problem is, it only takes one to not, and you no longer have a just society. <laughs> and we all know, and scripture teaches, scripture is one of the few theologies slash philosophies, I think it's much more than that, but just to put it in these frames for a moment, scripture is one of the few theologies and philosophies which actually acknowledges that humans are flawed and are going to mess up. And no matter how many rules you give them, they're going to mess up. <laughs> so therefore, you can't ever say that. You can't argue, well, if we just did it right, then everything would be right. Yeah, that's true, but we won't. Which sounds very depressing and negative, but that's where Solomon is right now. There's a lot of evil under the sun. Can't get there. Meredith, you were going to say something. That's okay. Okay. So he goes on. He's, he's said not justice. Now he's going to go to another approach. He's going to talk about labor. But he's going to talk about labor in terms of service. So earlier he talked about labor in terms of legacy and heritage and what you built. And his answer to that was it doesn't matter because it's all going to come apart at some point. Or someone else is going to take all your wealth and use it for the wrong things. Now he's going to talk more, and I think this is implied in, in the, thing, the problems he talks about with it, although he doesn't say it. He's going to talk about labor in terms of service. So Solomon's been a public servant all his whole life, most of his life. And, and he's going to talk about the futility of that. And he's going to talk about why even when you choose your labor not only for your own wealth, although there is that, he'll get into that in a second, but he's going to say even when you're ostensibly doing things for the sake of other people, he's going to say the truth is that's a lie and it's an illusion and nobody ever does anything for the sake of other people. So, here we go. And I saw that all toil and all achievement, hear the inclusiveness of this, I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So he says, I saw that, that people don't build things for the value of building them or to make the world better. They really just do it to keep up with the Joneses. Yeah, they really just do it so that they can say, look what I did, right? And who should know? I mean, Solomon has built more than anybody and ostensibly for the good of other people. And so in some ways, this is a little bit of a confession. He's like, I get it. <laughs> I get it. And then he probably watches kingdoms all over the world who are envying who? Yep. Him, right? So he's probably like, don't build what I'm building. Build something better. But, you know, they don't. So he says, I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, so chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. So he's saying that, look, what happens is it just leads us, like, like keeping up with the Joneses, it just leads us into this perpetual attempt to have more and more and more and do better and better and better. And he's saying far better it would be to have fewer things built and be content than to constantly be building more and more to try to have it up on the other person, right? He's arguing for contentment here. This is one of the few better moments. Better it would be to have one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked. And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. 
So he says, all we care about is keeping up with the Joneses. Joneses. Contentment with what you have is better, but it's also meaningless if it's only for you. Notice the progression here. He starts by saying, all we do is build to look better than other people. Then he says, it would be better if we could build and just be content with what we have. But as he often does in Ecclesiastes, when he gives us hope with one hand, he pulls it back with the other. Because now he says, even if it's contentment for you, guess what? If you don't have anyone to share it with, that's also meaningless. You won't be satisfied with it. So he's covering all the bases. Yeah, he's covering all. Is he ever covering all the bases? Yeah, he really is. Um, and he says it's miserable. All right. So labor, service, also a big fat no. Doesn't, 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 doesn't change the world. Doesn't lead to purpose. Is this if only is not going to fulfill us. It's not going to get us there. This doesn't add meaning to life. And look at this list because I can promise you that you all know people who are trying to make life out of these things. Right? And maybe some of them are in this room. These are very popular if-onlys. If I just knew enough, if I was just smart enough, I could get it to all happen. You know what? Forget that. Let me just enjoy myself. That doesn't work either. If I could just be part of the right cause, change the world for the better. Well, that doesn't work either. Maybe I can build things that will have a legacy, not for me, but of service to the world. Yeah, guess what? Your motivation's not as good as you thought. <laughs> and even if you do it for your own contentment, that's also not going to satisfy you. And then he's going to take a little, a, little, a little tangent, but it's a good one. We need, every once in a while, we need him to say something positive, and he's going to. He, he was talking about the poor guy who's got no brother and no son, and it causes him, I think, to think about this one thing he can say is better. There is something that's better. He's not prepared to say anything is best or even good, by the way, notice. He's just prepared to say something's better. Okay? So here's what he says. Yeah, here's a couple. Here's a couple better thans. He says two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. How can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves and a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Community, fellowship, other people, support, both for practical purposes, because your labor will be better, even though he just said the labor doesn't really matter, uh, and for purposes of if you fall, there's someone there to help you up, and for purposes of defense and protection, two is better, three is even better than that. So there is an acknowledgement here that it is better not to be alone. He's going he's gonna to at least go with that. Bit of a left turn here, and went off to a different subject. It's an interesting placement of this. Why? Why here? Why now? I don't know, except that, again, I think it, it, it kind of came out of that recognition that when people labor for themselves, it's not enough. So I think it was kind of a natural place to say, it's kind of like when he says, you know, you might as well enjoy your work. It's kind of a place to say, look, if, if you're going to go through this life, which is as hard as it is, you might as well do it with somebody. You might as well team up. Better or poor, then he's going to give another better then. Better or poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. So he's going to say wisdom, but he is going to pull this one back pretty fast. So the first thing he says is it's better to, to, to be poor but be wise. And remember for Solomon, a lot of wisdom is about being able to heed a warning. It's about being teachable, right? Isn't that what we saw in Proverbs? 
So I think that's what he's talking about here. Better to be poor, be able to heed a warning, than to be a foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. Is he talking about himself, by the way? Possibly. There's a lot of this soul surging where you kind of wonder, is he the old foolish king now? Because he's just been told by God, you messed up and you lost it all. God kind of, again, started this whole thing by telling him, everything you build is gone. It's meaningless. This is kind of what has stirred all this. This is his resolving the place he's at, trying to. So maybe he is the old foolish king. But listen to what he says. So there's a, there's a better then. Good, better to be poor and wise than to be rich and foolish. But then it goes on this weird sort of story that really has nothing to do with what he just said, except that it allows him to take back what he just said. And here's how he does it. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship. What? Why are we all of a sudden making the youth a king? Right? There's nothing in his previous statement that makes this necessary, but this is where he's going. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. Wait, so now all of a sudden the youth is the king's successor. Don't know where this is coming from. There was no end to all the people who were before them, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. Okay, so here's the story. He just unfolded very oddly. He says, better to be a poor youth than a rich king. And I think he means it. A rich king is foolish. But then it's like he says, but the inevitable progression is, (laughs) the poor, wise youth will someday become a foolish, rich king. And people won't like him. Is he talking about himself? Not really, because he was never a poor youth. Right? That, that was never his situation. What, what, what's now, David record? was, but I don't think he think David thinks David ever became a foolish king. I just think his point is, because then he concludes, this too is meaningless, to chasing after the wind. I think he's just saying, don't get too excited about the fact that I said it's better to be poor and wise. That's true. The problem is, that is as temporary as everything else I've been talking about. Okay, but okay. The point is, yes, this is better, but no, it's not good. Because it's temporary. Because like everything else, it will change in the wrong way. It will change and not change, <laughs> right? Everything only changes to the non-changing status of everything being bad. That's, that's Solomon's mood at the moment. All right, let's, let's press on. So he does give us a couple better thens, but, you know, a little bit weak. And then he says, but now you were talking about a left turn. Now he's really going to make a left turn. And I'm not entirely sure how all this left turn falls in, except here's how I would say it. You can read it, and maybe you see a different way to get from where we were to where we are. It's similar to what happened, and this is going to be where we are going to start to wrap up. Remember last week, it was all, this didn't work, this didn't work, this didn't work, and then he was like, oh, but there's a time for everything, there's a plan. He kind of makes this left turn where he says, well, maybe there's some hope. It's, it's, it's not... It's not completely solid. It's not completely like now we're happy. But, but he, that's when he starts talking about this big plan of God that maybe gives meaning to our lives. He's going to do the same thing again. He's going to go back to that idea. And he's going to talk about some things that are a nice respite from the consistent uh, everything's bad. So I don't know if it's just that he knows to get you through this whole journey. He has to every once in a while dangle a carrot. Otherwise you will just lie down and die. Um, or, or what? I don't know if there's a more graceful reason, but I think what he's doing is he is going back to that. So the only hint he's given us so far throughout all this is that somehow, if we fear God, if we respect God, if we recognize God, whatever the words are that you want to say, if we acknowledge God, the hint he's given us, if we can acknowledge a God who's eternal, who's permanent, that might give us some meaning to our lives. 
There might, if we stop trying to build our own empires and stop trying to make our own way and let God's plan imbue what we do with meaning, that might be the way we get out of this tension or this fix where we want perfection, but we never see it. We want beauty, but we never see it. We want justice, but we never have it. And I think he's going to return to that. And he's going to kind of say, okay, so if it is that, we haven't concluded it is yet, but if it is that, here's some things you might watch for. Here's some things you could do to make even this meaningless, is kind of what he's saying. Here's some things you could do that would mess up even this approach. So let's not do that. And this is what he says. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know they do wrong. I think he's hinting at the fact that even as you approach God, there's a way to do it where it becomes a, the wrong kind of if only, where it's not counting on God, it's still counting on you to make it happen, to bring the meaning to it. I think that's what he means by a sacrifice of fools. A fool comes and he brings a sacrifice not because God deserves it, but because he's trying to get something from God. Did we ever see that in the scriptures up to this point in history? Yes. Did we ever see God rebuke people for that? Yes. There are times God said, I don't even care about your sacrifices. Essentially, God said, they're meaningless, right? Because they're not for me, they're for you. They're part of your plan to make this all work out. So I think Solomon is saying, even this approach to God can be a problem. So he says, guard your steps, be careful. Go to listen. When you go to God, go to listen. Rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know they do wrong. They don't even know that what they're doing is wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven, and you are on earth, so let your words be few. Just recognize who God is, that he's over the sun, and you're under the sun, and just be aware of that. And I think there's a very specific point he's making, which we'll get to in a second. He says, a dream comes when there are many cares. And many words mark the speech of a fool. So I think this is the key to what he's saying. A dream comes when there are many cares. Forget everything else for a moment. Forget everything else in Ecclesiastes for a moment, because I think this line makes sense on its own. It will fit in with Ecclesiastes in a second, but I just want to talk about this line for a second. A dream comes when there are many cares. What does that mean? What does it mean to have many cares? Just general language, what would you think that would mean? Yes. Lots of fretting, lots of worries, lots of anxiety. So there's a lot that needs to be fixed in your life. And when you have all those cares, you start dreaming about a better life. I think that's what he's saying. He's, yeah, exactly. I think that's what he's saying. He's saying when you have a lot of cares, that's when you start reaching out for something. Not bad in and of itself. Okay, That's not a bad thing in and of itself. But... He says, this is what happens. I get it. We're, we're, we're feeling all the frustrations and anxiety. Maybe we're anxious about justice. Maybe we're anxious about riches. Maybe we're anxious about, uh, about pleasure. Maybe we're anxious about our legacy. Whatever it is, we have all these cares in our life, and they push us to start dreaming, right? We do. I have never thought so much about the lottery as the days I've been my poorest, right? <laughs> and as I've... As I've told people before, if I ever win the lottery, I will know it's God because I don't buy a ticket. <laughs> so then I'll know for sure God made it happen, right? And I, I tell God that would be okay with me. 
And if he tells me to buy a ticket, I'll buy one. But the funny thing is, I don't think about the lottery except when I'm really financially stressed. It's not even something I think about, right? But then I do. I'm like, wouldn't that be amazing if I had a gazillion dollars and I didn't have to worry about it anymore? It's so cool. I would do this, I would do that, I would do the other. That dream comes from the cares. And so this is what he's saying. He says a dream, and he's, and he's putting this in the context of going to God, right? And making the sacrifice, the sacrifice of fools. And he's saying, stop talking and just listen. And then he says, a dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. I think in this context, he's not saying, don't share your anxieties with God. Clearly scripture, the rest of scripture tells us we should. He's not saying God isn't willing to listen to all your words. Of course God is willing to listen to all your words. But he's talking about a very specific scenario where you approach the house of God and instead of listening to what God's plan is, you tell him yours. You say to him, here's what I need. In other words, you still take those if-onlys and you're being slightly smarter because instead of just pursuing them on your own without acknowledging God, you're taking them to God and you're acknowledging God, but only as a bargaining chip. You're going to him and you're saying, here's some sacrifices so that you'll give me what I need. Here's a lot of words to convince you so that you'll give me what I need. The question is not whether God's, whether, whether you can coerce God to being on your side and your plan. It's not about asking God to bless your plan. It's about going to him and recognizing that his plan will be a blessing if you can accept it. And so I think that's part of what Solomon is saying. He's saying when you go to the temple... If you're going to acknowledge God, if we're going to try this fear of the Lord thing, if we're thinking this might lead to meaning, we need to not mess it up by simply making it another means to an end. Let's not make fear of the Lord a means to an end, where we simply go and say, look, God, look how much I trust you and respect you. Now give me my dreams because of my cares. And let me be clear. Jesus is very clear. Ask the Father for what you need. Ask the Father for what you want. He loves hearing from you, but it's an attitude. It's a, it's a point here about, am I going to the temple to manipulate God into giving me what I want? That's what the sacrifice of fools is. So I think he's giving us a little bit of a suggestion here about that. Listen first. Make no promises. So listen first. Second thing he's going to say, and he follows this along the same line, is he's going to say make no promises because he goes on to say this. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Why do you make a vow, really? I think his point is, if you make a vow, it should be because it's a vow. It should be because it's something you want to do for God. But vows in the Old Testament, that's what they were. They weren't bargains. They were simply, I'm making a vow of the Nazarite. I'm going to give my whole life to God. I'm making the vow of the... Of the, the, the uh, Whatever Samuel made, it's slipping my head. But I make these vows because that, that's the vow I'm making, because I'm going to do it. Why would you make a vow and not do it? Because it's not really about making a vow. Because it's about trying to bargain with God. Because it's about saying, I'm going to promise you this, and then maybe I won't do it. <laughs> you know, because you didn't come through. So I don't do it. And he's saying, look, just don't make the vow. Don't make the promise. That would be far better. If you're, not, if you're not making a vow for the sake of a vow, just keep your mouth shut listen right do not let your mouth lead you into sin and do not protest to the temple messenger my vow was a mistake <laughs> why would your vow be a mistake because you were trying to bargain with God 
do this and I will go to Sunday school the rest of my life. You know, rescue me from this. And I, I think God is very gracious about these things, by the way. I know a lot of people who've made these kind of vows. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. Bottom line is, the vows, the sacrifices, they should be about fearing God. You should be honoring God for God's sake, not for what you get from God. But this is tension. This is hard for us to do. And I think Solomon acknowledges that. So it is another tension, but it is the bottom line. Fear God for his own sake, not for what he can bring you. Because here Solomon's been saying, maybe some of the hint, maybe some of the hope that we have is that if we can just trust that God has a plan, then we can enjoy our life, we can pursue that, we can rest, fear God, and things will be maybe a little bit better. But I think he wants to avoid, he wants to head off at the pass, the wrong left turn. I think he wants to head off at the pass where we're like, oh, okay, I get it now. Solomon's saying, as long as I fear God, then all these other things, I can do whatever I want, and it'll all be good. And Solomon's saying, no, that's not what I'm saying. Because, once again, who should know? Solomon. I don't think there was a moment in Solomon's life where he didn't justify what he was doing because it was, it was about honoring God. Except possibly when he started building the idols. But at that point, we're way past that. I'm just saying, I think Solomon was in a position where everything he did, he said, I'm doing this for God. But he's now recognizing it wasn't. <laughs> He had the formula. Absolutely. And so I think that's what he's saying is really, and it's a tension because it's hard. How do you fear God for God's sake and not for what he gives you? And God promises he gives us lots of stuff. But I don't think God, see, here's the, let me put it in a New Testament perspective for a moment because I don't think it's at odds with it. But the New Testament gives us another way to think about that. And it's this. It's not that bargaining with God is bad because, um, because God doesn't like being coerced. It's that bargaining with God is bad because it implies a lack of faith that God's on your side already. It's saying that God's plan for me isn't good unless I can give him a reason to make it good. And I think God's offended by that because he wants to say, I'm already working on your behalf with everything I've got. I've already demonstrated for you in the New Testament how much I love you. I've already demonstrated for you how much I'm on your side. I've already demonstrated for you that there is nothing you can do that makes me love you more, and there's nothing you can do that makes me love you less, because my love is infinite, and you cannot change that. But Moses bargained with him all the time. I don't think he did. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Why didn't I think of that? <laughs> I think... He I mean, said, you know, give me someone to speak with me, yeah, I'll go. Take, and then he said, like, well, I'm and not how did go that, unless you okay. go, but that was God-led. Okay, so Moses bargained with God, and it didn't work out when he did. I'll, I'll admit that. Because was Aaron really helpful to Moses? No. In fact, Aaron was his biggest problem for the rest of his ministry. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. And... There are times that God hears a bargain and concedes, and as he concedes, he gives a warning. Kingship is one of them. They said, we want a king. And he said, okay, but you're not going to like it. And they didn't. So, yes, you're right. Moses did bargain. But it's never seen as, a, as his shining moments. That's true. <laughs> right? In fact, his shining moment is when he said, I don't want the promised land if you're not there. I'll just take you. That's all I want. Because that's what Solomon's getting at. 
let's fear God for God's sake. New okay. Testament reminds us. So I just want to make sure that that, that point is clear. It isn't good to bargain with God because it's, it's, it's unnecessary. God is already on our side. God already wants to give us everything we can. This is why Jesus says all those things like, look, when, you, when your son asks for a fish, do you give him a rock? And every father goes, of course not. And then Jesus says, yeah, and you're really bad at love. So think how much better God is, right? He's not going to give you a, a rock. That's not what he wants to do. When he says, you know, ask your heavenly father for your daily bread, he goes on to say, and you know what? All these things you worry about, he doesn't say don't worry about them because they're not spiritual. He says don't worry about them because God knows you need them. Which is a very different statement. Don't worry about them because God knows you need them and he desires to bless you. Jesus says the Father has gladly, eagerly, enthusiastically chosen to give you the kingdom. Jesus is very clear. I have come here to die on your behalf and not one of you did anything to attract my attention to deserve it. There is nobody that threw up a bargain and said, hey, here, God, come save us, and this will happen. Jesus says, nobody even tried. I came here because I came here. Nobody takes my life, not the Jews, not the Romans, nobody. I give it. Right, because I want to. He cries in the garden. He sweats drops of blood. He's in as great an anguish as we can imagine emotionally there. He's in a huge physical anguish on the cross. And it says that for the joy set before him, he endured that. Because for him, it was worth it. He saw great joy on the other side. Because you are his great joy. So I think Solomon isn't there. Solomon's not seeing that end yet. He's recognizing that God is worthy of honor regardless of what he gives us. And that is true. That is true. But the New Testament also reminds us that bargaining with God is a fool's errand because God is already in your corner. Thank you for joining us on The Journey. We'll see you next week. Discipleship Matters is a ministry designed specifically to aid pastors of small and medium-sized churches through resources such as conferences and coaching and, and counseling and guidance and books and studies. If you're interested in more information, visit davidmcgill.com. That's davidmcgill, M-E-G-I-L-L.com. Thank you very much.